Buongiorno amici, benvenuti to Kimberly's Italy, a podcast about our love of all things Italian. My name is Kimberly Holcomb, and I'm here with il mio numero uno. <laughs> Tommaso. Tommaso. Okay. Una notizia grande. A big announcement. Ready? We hit the 100 country mark. Woohoo! We're now listened to in 100 countries. And it is so gratifying for us to realize that the global reach uh, it is attainable from just the word of mouth and social media. And we have one thing in common with these 100 countries. We all love Italia. And country number 100 is? Well, I've been waiting all day for you to tell me. Who is it? Ukraine. No. Yes. How amazing is that? That someone in this country right now under siege and under such pressure wants to listen to a podcast on Italy. Maybe it takes them away from no kidding what they're having to deal with. Isn't that amazing that Italy, such a small country, can have such an impact on people from around the world? So whoever listened to us in Ukraine, if you're listening to this episode, we're very happy you're listening and we're hoping for the 30 to 40 minutes takes for the episode that we take you away from the issues that you're facing from that idiot Putin. I'm going to cry. We wish you the best of luck and thank you for listening. All right. Well, actually, before we start, I I hate to sound like a broken record, but I just want to mention this one thing that for anyone that's thinking of going in the spring or the summer to Italy, my advice to you is to start planning now. I've noticed in the last few weeks, because I have clients going as soon as March 2023 and then the rest of spring, all of summer, and I've been looking for accommodations for them, and I've found somewhat limited availability in various places all over the country. So I'm not trying to scare you off. I'm just suggesting... Plan now. Think ahead. Yes. So, and to be totally honest... For a couple of these uh, clients, the price range per night, that's how I like to work with people is they give me a price range. They don't price point. They don't want to go over per night unless they rent a villa or stay in a castle, something like that. But I have to say that hotel rooms in the like 250 to 300 euro per night price range are harder to find than they were last year or less, less availability. So just travel tip here, start planning now. For those of you that like to hire travel planners like myself, call me soon. Well, you know, the dollar, speaking, I know we have an international audience, but the dollar is strong against the euro right now. And I don't know what the Australian dollar is doing or the pound against the euro, but you know, that could have an effect on it. The fact that the dollar is strong yes. against the euro yes, and uh, people are looking for a little value and they're finding a 10 to 15% discount. So if you're in the States, uh, think about it. Because when El Capo comes into the kitchen <laughs> and we meet up once in a while, she'll be all stressed out going, I've just been searching for 45 minutes and I can't find anything for XYZ client. <laughs> it's not that dire, but it is well, a no, good idea. To- there were some people who you were, not dire, but you were looking hard. Yes, of course. They had very specific requests. Yes, yes. All right. Well, so that's the end of my uh, suggestions for this episode. So. Okay, El Capo. Let's allora. Go. Allora. <laughs> let's start with the small city of Orvieto. 
It's perched high on a hill in southwest Umbria, and it's not just your average hill. It is a bluff of volcanic rock, which basically made them impervious to enemies of all types for a while anyway. (laughs) I'll let you know why. But Orvieto has been populated since Etruscan times. And for those of you who are not specifically sure when the Etruscan times were, like, why doesn't everyone know this? (laughs) This is your history lesson for today. Etruscan civilization thrived in central Italy between the 8th and 3rd century BC. So quite long ago. And for all the great things they achieved, they were basically obliterated by their nemesis and conquered by Rome in the 3rd century BC, which was the end of Etruscan times. However, a lot of their tombs and wall paintings survive to this day in places like Orvieto and Eastern Tuscany. So it's not lost forever. You can see the things that they made up until the 3rd century BC in specific places. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, the city of Orvieto's defensible site gained new importance. And finally, somewhere around, I think it was the 10th century, they became self-governing and quite friendly with the papacy. Then guess what happened? (laughs) Sitting here poised like a coiled spring. What? (laughs) Molto importante. In 1290 AD, the cornerstone was laid for the Duomo of Orvieto. And I told you last episode I was going to go on about this Duomo because it's incredible. Okay, the church lady's going off here. It won't be long. It won't be long. But it's one of my favorites because the two sides and the back So three sides of this massive Duomo are so graphic, black and white horizontal stripes. The white is a tavertine and the black is this deep, it's almost like a greenish black basalt, which is the formal word for volcanic rock. It is so visually striking and graphic. And the first time I saw it years and years ago was this blue sky day, like a perfect day. And I came from the side, not from the front of the facade of the church, came from the side. And there's this black and white graphic beauty in front of me with this deep blue sky behind it. And I was just literally, those are one of those times where I was stopped in my tracks. And the following decade in like 1305 or something like that, they hired an architect from Siena to design the facade, and it could not be more polar from <laughs> the back and the sides of this church. And maybe that's why it's such a an anomaly. It's famous. The facade is considered one of the greatest masterpieces of the late Middle Ages, and that's saying a lot for the facade of a church to be to compete with the rest of the Italian arts. It's saying a lot for you to think this is yes. great. Yes, well... <laughs> It has been said. I didn't say it's, it's got, one of the greatest masterpieces. Church ladies imprimatur on it. Oh my God, I have a brilliant idea. We should have like my top 10, top 100 churches in Italy. One episode in the future. Wow, I could have my own like encyclopedia. Okay, we anyway. We have, have to outsource the production of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> you won't do it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, back to the facade of this Duomo in Orvieto. It is a very gothic, busy, beautiful facade, and it's massive. It's the equivalent of seven stories tall, and it's covered in gold mosaic tiles 
depicting the life of the Virgin Mary. And to be honest, I didn't notice the specific stories, the drawings of these mosaic tiles. I was just mesmerized by the glimmering gold tiles and the colors and just in awe of the fact that the entire facade was made up of these little tiles. And mosaic tiles are small. They're like one inch square. So imagine using an adhesive in the day with millions of these little square tiles, putting them into place to depict the drawing, for lack of a better word, all the while standing on a scaffolding made of wood and hemp, all the way like seven stories tall. Wow. Right? And I remember from my art history classes, you might as well, Tommaso, if you you took them, um, a lot of scaffolding in the old days collapsed under their own weight. Well, they didn't have, it was, they were all tied together, lashed together. I know. They weren't, they were engineered with the materials they had. Exactly. So there you have it. Think of putting these little one inch tiles up, standing on top of that and, and they did it. Perhaps that's why it's considered one of the masterpieces. They didn't have bamboo. And as you know, well, exactly. well know, a lot of the scaffolding in All Asia, of Asia. To this day, I saw it when I was there, like, I don't know, 18, 20 years ago. Mind blowing. Anyway, we are digressing. Okay. In summary, my travel tip to you is if you go, or I should say when you go to Orvieto, walk around the entire church on the exterior first. Do that before you go in. Inside, you'll be blown away as well. It's the same black and white horizontal stripe. More subtle because the sunlight's not shining on it with the blue sky behind. And it is just amazing. So, and I also, to be honest, have a funny little story about this Duomo from the last time I was there in 2018, which, funny enough, was also like a blue sky stunner of a day. And I was with four friends, and after we saw the church inside and out, they wanted lunch, and it was the typical lunchtime, like noon, 1230, and they wanted to sit outside and have a view of the church. And I thought, I can't do that. That is like, you know. (laughs) Sacrilegious. It was one of those, you know, places that would fall into my number one rule of never eat in the main piazza, especially next to the Duomo. Where all the tourists. Right. Tourists. So I said, just just wait here. I'll go down the street and find something. And they're car-free streets. So I walked down this little walkway and found a super sweet place outdoors. Mostly young Italian people eating there. Asked the waiter for a table for five. He said, see. I was like, I'll be back in five minutes. I go back to get my friends. And they're like, no, no, no. Look, we got a table right there. And they pointed off to the side. And I thought, well, you know, it's their first time in Orvieto. They're my friends. I was escorting them. I was like, va bene, certo, okay. Ran back and told the other waiter, sorry, my friends want to be there. We sat down. The view was amazing. We ordered and guess what? Another guess what? It was good? It was It, was, it was fantastic. Ah. <laughs> Lunch was Fantastic. I was driving on that trip, so I didn't drink everything that they had, which was a variety of Aperol spritz and wine with lunch. And it was so lovely. And later when I went inside to pay, I noticed that everyone, absolutely everyone inside was Italian. It was a Sunday. It was a busy lunch day. Right. And I thought signs of a good restaurant. And I was proven wrong. 
But the thing is, we were the tourists because we wanted to sit outside and look at the Duomo. They see it every day. Right. They don't need to it's sit outside. It's in the neighborhood. Right. So anyway, there you have it. I was proven wrong. Alora, there's more to Orvieto. And just like Perugia, a lot of it is underground. The Pozzo di San Patrizio. That means the well of St. Patrick's. And it was dug in the 16th century to enable the citizens to have water year round. And keep in mind, there were cisterns underground, you know, centuries beforehand. But this was a well dug specifically right in the center of Orvieto on top of this volcanic rock because they couldn't really have aqueducts running uphill to the top of Orvieto. Called a pump. Right. So instead they dug down 200 feet down, 43 feet wide in a totally cylindrical shape. Then after they dug that, you know, initial cylinder, they built two ramps that spiraled up this cylinder, one for going up and one for going down. And they just passed each other like a double helix. And then they spaced steps far enough apart for donkey, for the people to guide their donkeys up the hill with the water, guide them back down to get it. And then finally, after these ramps were built, they added a brick wall inside of the cylinder and they actually added arched windows that allowed some of the light to filter in from above. And I'm telling you, you cannot believe it. You have to see it in person. It's absolutely incredible. I went years ago on my first visit and sadly on this trip with the friends at the awesome lunch, we didn't have time to go, but I highly recommend going to see Pozzo di Patrizio. You can take me, darling. Yes, you would love it. It's not claustrophobic at all, truly, because of they were so clever to add the arch windows. And finally, about this well, above the entrance, there's a phrase in Latin that translates to what nature stinted or limited. So what nature limited for provision, application has supplied. Rather poignant, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other underground phenomenon in Orvieto is the Citta Sotaranea. It's an underground city, a literal underground city. It's a labyrinth of grottos and rooms and corridors from 2,500 years ago. Crazy, right? Right. Even crazier factor is there's up to 1,200 of these grottos or structures in this underground city, and they were used for everything. They found remnants of olive presses, millstones, furnaces, stalls for all the animals doing all that labor. And that I kept thinking about must have been a very sad life for those horses and donkeys just dark all day until they deliver olive oil up above and then back down into stalls. Well, kind, not, of, kind of sad. To mention the people too. I mean, it's sort of similar to Matera. We talked about Matera with the animals living in. True, but this is underground, zero light. Zero. They lived in caves, but they did carve out a couple little holes for right. windows. I guess it's more like going to work in a coal mine. Apparently, the locals of Orvieto were so used to their life on this volcanic stone mass that, you know, centuries earlier when they dug for cisterns and wells, long before the St. Patrick's well I just described, they just kept digging. And they thought, well, our square footage on top of this volcanic rock is limited. We can't 
expand our living quarters and whatnot. So we'll just dig below. And they did. So you can visit this underground city, the Chita Sotaranya, but only by a guide and in a group of like 20 or 30 people. They wisely <laughs> do not let anyone go on their own. Can you imagine getting <laughs> lost amongst those 1,200 structures down below? No. That would be scary. No, being, being claustrophobic, I yeah. cannot imagine that. But you could go with a guide. I think it would be okay. And a very big flashlight. <laughs> All right. Finally, Orvieto, it just, it has so much beautiful clock towers, archaeological museums, an art museum, fortresses, more churches, you name it. Orvieto is a gem. So go visit. Go visit. Okay. Now, let me tell you about Todi. This is the village I've been promising to talk about for like the last three episodes. Three finally. Months, three months. Finally, we're here. Todi claims to be one of Italy's most beautiful villages or Borgo. I think I've described this before. Borgo is a village. Borghi, plural, villages. So Todi is uno dei borghi più belli d'Italia. One of the most beautiful villages of Italy. Okay, and Borghi, just so you know, in case you want to know, is spelled B-O-R-G-H-I. H is silent. And the other description I absolutely love of Todi is, quote, delightfully stranded in the Middle Ages. Delightfully stranded. Isn't that perfect? <laughs> I read that years and years ago in a book, an old-fashioned book that I used to use to do our road trips. And when I read that, I was like, Let's go to a delightfully stranded village in the Middle Ages. It's it's like my musical taste. Delightfully stranded in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> Good analogy. It's a tranquil, teeny borgo. And legend is that an eagle stole this blanket from a couple setting up a picnic elsewhere. He picked it up, flew away with it, and dropped it on top of this little hilltop, which became Todi. Now, Todi's main square, check this out, is called Piazza del Popolo. You remember the last Piazza del Popolo you've been to, and that was in Rome. Ah. Big, busy, circular, all those obeliques, crazy, awesome piazza, right? Mm -hmm. This one <laughs> is small, piccolo. rectangular, piccolo piazza, piccola piazza, rectangular and just like the village itself, just tranquilo. It's so small, it's so quiet and it's so welcoming at the same time. All the buildings are the same stone, either that white travertine or that kind of sienna umbra color. So white and, you know, ochre color. And there's just a few buildings, a little like Palazzo Priori, you know, as most villages have or small cities. And you go there and you sit outside, you take a table at one of the four or five places, maybe if that rest, ristorante to sit outside and have lunch or dinner. And you just take in the view. And again, just like I mentioned in our last episode, just envisioning what it was like in the Middle Ages, because everything, nothing's changed. So you're sitting there in 2022 and it looks like it did in the Middle Ages. Pretty, pretty cool. And just like Orvieto, Todi has underground cisterns right under this Piazza del Popolo from the first century. But my opinion is 
or my suggestion is if you're going to go underground, save it and do it in Orvieto or, or Perugia. Much more impressive. I'll stay above and have a cocktail. <laughs> have an Aperol spritz right. sitting in the... Right. Sitting in the... Uh, Piazza del Popolo. The Piazza del Popolo. Mm-hmm. The best view of this little teeny borgo of Todi is from the Chiesa San Fortunato. Now, think of that guy's name. Saint Fortunate. Isn't that good? This facade of this little Chiesa... I think he was lucky. Ha ha. He was fortunate. <laughs> he was fortunate to become, be named that saint. Anyway, the facade of this little Chiesa San Fortunato was never finished. And I absolutely love the fact that Italians left them as is for all of history. It's like the unfinished facades in Florence that are just so magnificent. And the top half of this Chiesa looks like to me like an analogy is, you know, when you, in in this day and age, you pour a concrete foundation with those wooden forms. When you remove the wooden forms, you can see the little proud bits of concrete that stuck out in between the slats and right. whatnot. So that's what the facade of this church looks like. There's the stone and then every maybe 16, 18 inches is a row of other stone that's proud from the, the rest of it where a fancy marble facade would have been adhered with whatever kind of adhesive or stone nails, whatever they did. And yet it just sits there all these years later and it's absolutely stunning. It's waiting for its facade? No, they'll never do it. It's part of history. They leave them. Oh. You know that. Okay. I forgot. I'm sorry. He had a... Oh, no, yeah. Okay. Think of it this way. Architectural brain fart. Yes, I was going to say brain fart, and I thought that was just too juvenile. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll leave it in. Anyway, think of these churches, the facade-less churches, as what must have been like the ugly duckling in the day. But now they're historic. They're proud of it, and they're beautiful. Okay, finishing up with Toadie, most people, I want to tell you, are day trippers. However, I have sent clients there to stay as their base for visiting Umbria and Eastern Tuscany, and they've absolutely loved it, especially at night, because they go to Piazza del Popolo and eat outside, and they're maybe one of the only tourists sitting out there. They're eating that cuisine, that Umbrian cuisine, and that wine that we described before. So, eggless pasta. And all the cured meats, the boar, the pork, you name it, Tommaso eats it. And that Sagrantino wine. And don't forget Umbria's other culinary claims to fame, those lentils like you've never tasted before, sheep's milk cheeses, and of course, their fungi. Tartufo, Mm. mushrooms, Mm. right? Mm. And the Sagrantino grape I mentioned from previous episodes, the red wine that's so prominent in the entire region of Umbria, including Todi. So imagine this. So I think this is how I will end this episode. Imagine you're staying in Todi for the night. You go to Piazza del Popolo for dinner. And you order their cured meats and a cheese for an appetizer. You're sipping that Sagrantino wine I mentioned, whose grapes have been growing in their soil for centuries. Then you eat that eggless pasta that shares the plate with fungi or tortufo. 
all the while looking at these medieval buildings in this simple but stunning piazza. And you're having a great conversation with me because you've invited me along <laughs> to have that wonderful. Oh, you mean our listeners here? Yes. Oh, I see. Okay, this I'm little hungry. this I'm little hungry. daydream comes with Tomasa. <laughs> all right, and that's there's no other ifs, ands, or buts about that. All right, doesn't get much better though, does it? Nope. All righty. I'm hungry. You're always hungry. <laughs> All right. That, my friends, ends this series of ours on Umbria. For now, anyway. And to keep in line, I think, to keep in line with cuisine and especially a pasta with meat, our next episode will be on the city of Bologna. And believe it or not, this is actually hard to believe, but most Italians from all the various regions around the country begrudgingly admit that Bologna is the capital of La Cucina Italiana. And what is Tommaso's favorite pasta? Bolognese. Oh, yes. <laughs> I can make that for hours. Well, you should eat it instead in Bologna. That's also on the list. Okay. Finally, I want to send a big grazie mille to all the recent reviews we've had on Apple Podcasts. Sandeman5, you are a dedicated listener and an excellent cheerleader for us. And also to Capwalks for letting us know how our episodes helped plan their upcoming trip. I think they leave like this week. So, buon viaggio. Same goes from Anne from Philly. They just returned from a trip to Lake Como, Venezia, and Milano and listened to all our episodes to help them plan it. And actually, Tyson said the same thing. They went to Rome and Positano as well. And finally, a woman named whose podcast name, whatever you call that, is Weight Watchers Convert, <laughs> said our episodes have them dreaming of returning to Italy, even though they've been there so many times before. So, grazie tutti. Thank you. Thank you. And chat to you next week. Ciao, ciao. Grazie tutti. Ciao, ciao. Bravo. Bravo.